0: That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, February the 27th. You're very welcome to the
1: Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me in studio today, our political editor, Pat Leahy. And on the line, our London editor, Dennis Staunton, because the big story in the news yet again is Brexit. Dennis, before I go to you, I'm just going to play a clip of the, I suppose, the kind of the key points from Theresa May's speech in Westminster yesterday.
2: Today I want to reassure the House by making three further commitments. First, we will hold a second meaningful vote by Tuesday the 12th of March at the latest. Second, if the Government has not won a meaningful vote by Tuesday the 12th of March, then it will, in addition to its obligations to table a neutral amendable motion under Section 13 of the EU Withdrawal Act, Table a motion to be voted on by Wednesday 13 March at the latest, asking this House if it supports leaving the EU without a withdrawal agreement and a framework for a future relationship on 29 March. So the United Kingdom will only leave without a deal on 29 March if there is explicit consent in the House for that outcome. Third. Third. If the House, having rejected leaving with the deal negotiated with the EU, then rejects leaving on the 29th of March without a withdrawal agreement and future framework, the government will on the 14th of March. Bring forward a motion on whether Parliament wants to seek a short, limited extension to Article 50. Dennis, this is,
1: this is a fantastic story for procedure nerds um, and people who like a good calendar. Um, the, the, those various votes due to take place in the second week in March, the 12th, the 13th and the 14th. Um, one can't but uh, mention the fact that the 15th of March is in fact the Ides of March as well. It has, has a certain resonance to it. Um, But beyond the procedure, this is a very significant shift in the political Brexit landscape.
3: It is. Uh, Peter Bone, the veteran Eurosceptic, said in the House yesterday that Theresa May has told the House 108 times that Britain is leaving the European Union on on the 29th of March. And what she said yesterday was, well, maybe they will. Uh, but uh, you know, if uh, her deal doesn't go through, and if uh, the House of Commons votes to delay, then she will seek a delay. She says she'll seek the shortest delay possible. Uh, but. Uh, it, again, this motion will be amendable. And so it could be that the MPs decide they want a three-month extension. They could decide they wanted to seek a nine-month extension. Uh, so all of these things are possible. And so once the date of March 29th comes into question, a very important uh, element of what the Brexiteers had in their hand is gone because the one thing they felt sure of until until now was the date. And now that date is gone.
1: And even in the last few hours, I think we've seen further shifts from the position, the very dogmatic position held up to now by arch-Brexiteers such as Jacob Rees-Mogg.
3: Yes, uh, what you've seen over the last couple of weeks has been uh, quite a shift, starting with the government in terms of what they want from this renegotiation of the withdrawal agreement. So what the Brady Amendment a few weeks ago said, which was passed by the House of Commons, it said that uh, the uh, the backstop must be replaced with alternative measures to ensure that the border remains open. And that's now been redefined so that what they're now looking for is a a legally binding assurance that uh, the backstop will not be indefinite or that Britain can't be trapped in the backstop. And what Jacob Rees-Mogg this morning said was that uh, it was fine by him if the backstop wasn't replaced, but that if you had some legally binding time limit on it, He said he wanted a date and to make sure that Britain could get out at at that date. But he also said that it didn't have to involve a change to the text of the withdrawal agreement itself. He said it could be an appendix and that after all, the the backstop is contained within an appendix to the agreement, the protocol. And so if it was an appendix to an appendix, as long as it had the effect, that was fine by him. So they're defining the demands downwards. And the key thing here is what satisfies the DUP, because the calculation at Westminster is that if the DUP find uh, whatever Theresa May Brings back from Brussels acceptable, then at least half of Jacob Rees-Mogg's European Research Group of Brexiteers and possibly more than that will say, "Well, if it's good enough for the DUP, it's good enough for us." And then that means that most of them will vote for it, and then she just has to make up the numbers with disaffected Labour MPs who uh, either support Brexit themselves or uh, or they represent very heavily Leave voting constituencies.
1: And Pat, then what are the calculations of the DUP?
0: at this moment. The view... I mean, Dennis is probably better positioned to speak about the DUP MPs and certainly they have exhibited more Brexity inclinations than the DUP in uh, in the North. But the view in Dublin, certainly, amongst Irish government sources that I've been talking to, is that the DUP MPs, with the possible exception of Sammy Wilson are looking for a deal uh, w- one of the the terms that Dennison no doubt have heard is that people are looking for a ladder to climb uh, to climb down and this indication the 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 contracting requirements for changes to the backstop that we have seen in recent weeks I think are uh, are evidence of that even this morning I'm, I'm Reading in the Financial Times that Jacob Rees-Mogg is no longer insisting that the Irish backstop be scrapped entirely, but uh, would perhaps be able to support changes to it. Again, there is a piece in the Sun this morning by Nick Gutteridge talking of the emergence of the sort of changes to the backstop uh, allied. To, which would be which would uh, be comprised of those sort of legal guarantees that it wouldn't be uh, that it wouldn't be an, 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 an indefinite an, an indefinite position for the uh, for for Britain to be kept in for the UK to be kept in uh, allied to a beefed up review process, uh, which uh, UK diplomats in Brussels were describing as a get out of jail free card. So I think the movement is all very clear in one direction. The interesting thing, from the perspective of uh, of us here, I suppose in in Dublin, is do the Irish government sign up to those changes, however cosmetic, to uh, to the backstop? And I have a piece in this morning's paper suggesting that that decision will uh, will will inevitably come to Marion Street, will come to government buildings, but I don't think it will come yet.
1: But there are two questions in relation to that, aren't there? There's a question of substance. Of, of what what that wording or appendix or whatever it might be might be, and there's a question of timing as to when one reveals one's hand
0: yeah I, I I think what is required on the British side is something that the Attorney General Geoffrey Cox can say this is uh, this is a legally enforceable change, and it will mean in the future that Britain cannot be kept indefinitely in the backstop against its will. Uh, that requires a change uh, in in substance. There's no doubt about it. How it is done in form, maybe as part of another protocol, a codicil to the treaty. Surely, there's already been
1: there's already negotiations and discussions going on around that, what that wording might be.
0: There are te- there are what we're what are described as technical discussions going on. Geoffrey Cox was in Brussels yesterday for discussions with uh, with European Commission negotiators. The Irish government say they have seen no texts yet, but. The I've no doubt that they're being kept in the loop by Brussels as to where those discussions are going. And that is a decision, I think, that has not been made yet. But uh, if it comes to be made, will only be made, I think, after, and this goes to your point about or your question about the timing. It will only be made after such time as the House of Commons has voted definitively that it would accept such a change now that presumably will require an ag- an agreed wording to be put to the house of commons because one thing that dublin and brussels won't agree to is a promise by mrs may that she can get something through the house of commons because they've been burnt by that, that, before. that before
1: dennis do you see that it's the same way as pat do you see that that jeffrey cox is likely to return to uh, westminster at some point in the next 2 weeks or so with a piece of paper of some sort that might actually yes. be voted on? yeah.
3: He could even return as early as next week. And there is some speculation at Westminster that, uh, you know, although these dates, she set these dates, so the uh, the meaningful vote has to happen by the 12th of, uh, of March, and the vote on no deal has to happen by the 13th, the vote on extending has to happen on the 14th, but the other two are movable forward. And so it's possible that he comes back next week. The Irish government uh, is not directly involved in the negotiations, but there have been pieces of paper exchanged across the table in Brussels in the last few days. Last week, uh, Geoffrey Cox was there again, as Pat says, yesterday. And what they're looking at, they're focusing around around two areas. One is, as Pat mentioned, the review clause, and it's somehow beefing that up or bigging it up in some way, and uh, so uh, describing how that would work, exactly how often you'd be able to review the thing, and then also pointing up the arbitration mechanism, which already exists. Now, the Irish are quite... Uh, wary of this, uh, of, the Irish are always wary of arbitration. It's one of the fundamentals of Irish foreign policy that we don't like arbitration. And uh, and and the way one official put it to me is, we're not going to allow some Australian judge to determine when the backstop should end.
1: Echoes of the Boundary Commission in 1926 about that. Well, I,
3: yeah, it's partly that. And actually, and the point is that they particularly never wanted to see anything to do with Northern Ireland put out to arbitration. They just felt that it was just too uh, too essential a national interest. So there's always a way of arbitration. and so it was something of a concession when uh, the arbitration mechanism was put in there in the first place. So the, uh, so the Irish will, will be wary about this. So I think you're going to have something which is around just how you get out, what are the mechanisms, what's the mechanism to get out to show that you really can, and that the European Union can't unilaterally stop Britain from leaving. Then there will be a few other things. One is they're going to look at how this so-called malt house compromise these alternative measures. How you bring them into the mix, and that will probably be in the political declaration, where you describe how some of these alternative arrangements could happen. And then there'll also be this whole range of things. Which uh, one of the things they've been speaking about for a very long time is the idea of a veterinary agreement, and the, you know because the most intrusive checks are animal health checks. And so you fi- if you find all these ways that you uh, that you can describe how bits of the backstop will fall away and that you promise that you'll get to negotiating how these bits of the backstop will fall away even before the backstop is ever put into action that you know then you have some sort of a route that describes how you get out of it now the problem is that if you're in Brussels looking at these negotiations up close all of this sounds like a major breakthrough and something of a concession to the UK whereas if you're at Westminster it may just sound really very complicated and arcane. And you might, if you're a Brexiteer, say, so where's the time limit? Where's the date that we can get out? Uh, Where's the line that says, at at the time of our choosing, we can give six months notice and then just leave? And that's probably not going to be there. And so that's where the expectations uh, in Brussels and at Westminster, there's a big gap. And that gap is going to have to be narrowed uh, further uh, if this vote is going to go through.
1: Well, that's exactly what I'm I'm wondering about listening to you there. I can completely see why and where the dup would be at a point now where they'd be looking for that ladder to climb to climb down into a into a safer space and uh, and an agreement and that there might be a pragmatic element in the european research group who might be willing to do the same But there has to be a hard core within that that part of the Tory party, which just views with horror the prospect of they see it being trapped into the backstop and the implication, the further implication of being trapped as they might see it, essentially into the customs union and perhaps other, uh, you know, key European structures forever
3: yeah, they don't like the deal for all kinds of other reasons, so that you know for some of the back the backstop is the issue. but for for a certain element of them, possibly a couple of dozen, maybe more, uh, they just don't like the deal because it involves remaining too close to the European Union. Uh, and so they will vote against it anyway. the The key question though then is how many of those can you replace with labor? Votes. And what has changed this week, as well as what Theresa May said, is Jeremy Corbyn's policy. And so, what Jeremy Corbyn said this week is that uh, today, Wednesday, he's going to table an amendment which lays out the Labour version of Brexit, what they want, which is permanent customs union, close alignment with the single market, protection of workers' rights, a few other bits and pieces of things. And when that amendment is voted down, as it inevitably will be this evening, at that stage, Labour's policy. Is to put whatever deal goes through to a confirmatory referendum. Uh, so that is, you, do you accept uh, leaving the European Union on these terms, or do you want to remain in the European Union? And so, uh, and so, for if you're a Labour Leave MP, if you're somebody who uh, believes that the uh, that the referendum result must be respected at all costs, you're faced with a choice: that you back Theresa May's deal, you risk a no deal Brexit or you go for a second referendum. And if the latter two are unacceptable choices, then it's easier for you to go for Theresa May's deal. And of course, it's much easier to vote for these things if it looks like it's about to win. So that if, say, uh, it's a, she's two or three votes short, uh, it's possible that she can offer various um, you know, persuasive arguments, which include, for example, money for the constituencies, which is one of the things that the government has been doing. There are all these grants they're looking at for, you know, for constituencies that are suffering from particular deficiencies, and uh, and so. Uh, and a lot of those are, are places where Labour leave MPs uh, occupy. So I think that you know, the the hope for the government would be that if this thing is enough to uh, to sway the DUP and half of the ERG, they can make up the rest of the numbers from across the aisle.
0: Isn't this significant? The other significance of what has happened this week is for those Brexit-inclined Tory MPs, for the kind of softer reaches of the ERG, is that for 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 really the first time the prospect of no brexit is uh, is 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 coming into is becoming a realistic sort of prospect so that if there is a long extension or which could include, you know, during that extension, you could have a general election, or if there is uh, the prospect of the second, uh, the second referendum looming into view, that the choice, and this clearly is Mrs May's strategy, that the choice that Brexit-inclined Tory MPs are faced with and the ERG is faced with is her deal, which they don't like, versus the possibility of no Brexit at all which they really don't like.
1: Yes, given that the the previous alternative, which in theory at least was on offer, Dennis, was between May's deal and no deal. What's now on offer is a choice between May's deal and no Brexit. And that's really what's turned things around, is it?
3: Yeah, well, except I suppose in a way the
1: choice is May's deal,
3: no deal and a delay. So you could still vote for uh, Theresa May's deal, maybe with an extra line or two about the review clause in a couple of months' time. And so you can, you know, uh, Theresa May has been characterizing it as another cliff edge. And so that you could find that um, the cliff edge has just moved from March to June. And then at that stage, maybe you either uh, vote for a no deal. I, she has been suggesting that. The European Union won't give another extension after June. If you go for a short extension, that that will mean you're not going to stand candidates for the European elections, and uh, and as such, uh, you know you can't then do anything about that. And so that's the end of the matter. They won't give you another one. In fact. Uh, there is another view, which is that, you know, if they were going to go for a longer extension, what the EU was going to do was to say, uh, well, actually, uh, you know, we can appoint. MEPs. Uh, And so they look at the model for Croatia when Croatia joined in 2013, a year before the 2014 European elections. What they did was that they appointed from the national parliament MEPs, which represented the composition of the national parliament. And so that'd be something that you could do. And there's no reason why they couldn't decide to do that in June before the MEPs take their seats at the beginning of July. And, And consequently, that you could actually have a short extension followed by a longer
1: one. Can I just try and clarify something? And please, you know, forgive me here because I'm a bit slow when it comes to these things. And there's something I, I can't quite get my head around there. You, when you were talking about the the Labour MPs who might vote in favour of, of, of Theresa May's deal for the reasons which you outlined, outlined there. Um, and they would be voting um, on behalf of the government's deal because they feared that if, if it did not succeed that you would end up with a referendum. But how would a referendum, despite Corbyn's commitment to it, how would a referendum arise if if the deal fell in May? Would you not end up with an extension and, and who knows what political process is? Because Corbyn can't yeah. force the referendum. You
3: can end up with an extension, and you can. But then, uh, over the extension, uh, the the strategy of the people's vote campaign. Well, they, they, you know, if you talk to them, they'll always say, "Look, we're going to be the last thing standing. Everything else has to be exhausted before Parliament is going to go for a second referendum." So you. So let's say they try to get uh, Mrs. May's deal through. It's clear that she can't form a majority on the basis of it, and so then they uh, try to go across the floor and do some kind of Norway plus, you know, a softer Brexit, and you can't get a majority for that. You're running out of delay. Uh, Nobody wants a general election. And so they say, look, let's put this back to the people. Uh, Or, for example, there could be, you know, one of these amendments that was uh, talked about in the last few days was an amendment which would say, you know, uh, we'll vote for Theresa May's deal, but only on condition that it goes to a referendum. So you could find, uh, you know, something like that. I think the problem is also that for uh, MPs standing in really very, very heavily leave seats, particularly in the North and the Midlands, to actually be seen to support a second referendum is viewed as a betrayal by those uh, Brexit voters. And those, you know, some of those are on very narrow majorities, you know, where most Labour MPs saw their majority increase. A lot of these saw their majorities decrease in the 2017 election. And the other problem, and one of the reasons why Jeremy Corbyn was dragging his feet, was that uh, a number, a lot of the seats that Labour lead, needs to win to get a majority next time, are heavily leave voting seats. And so so that's really the imperative for them. They won't don't want to be seen to do this because they just think it's electoral suicide.
2: Pat?
0: Yeah, I, I, I think that a second referendum is less likely, uh, to be honest, because I don't see the parliamentary mechanism that brings it about. I know Dennis has sketched out a couple of the possibilities there. They seem to me to be less likely at this stage than some of the other possibilities. I think one of the, I mean, the other significance of this week is the receding of no deal as a possibility. It's not completely ruled out because, of course, there is the possibility that all the votes on the twelfth, thirteenth, and fourteenth are defeated in uh, in the House. At which point, presumably, the, def- the legal default position of leaving on the twenty ninth of March still obtains. But I think, having said that, the overall momentum at this stage is towards a version of Mrs May's deal passing the Commons, if not during March, uh, uh, which I think is the most likely outcome, then in the months thereafter. I think there there is also in Brussels... Now, one Irish official that I was talking to yesterday was suggesting that no deal having been largely taken off the table, that maybe Brussels might want to sit for a couple of months? What was their incentive in making a a concession now? I think, however, that there is a, a growing sense in Brussels that this needs to be done and it needs to be got out of the way. There isn't really an expectation in the way that there was, I think, earlier in the process that the British would change their mind. I'm not sure that the EU really wants Britain.
1: Uh, I, I was reading sorry. an analysis somewhere yesterday that Mac, uh, Emmanuel Macron's view on this, from way back, had always been that a lengthy extension would be the best thing. Essentially, I suppose that the British would come to their senses over the course of that. That you know that if you kicked that can down the road, if you had a two-year extension of Article Fifty or something of that sort, that's not that's not what you're hearing from
0: Brussels. No, the sense the the sense I get to be honest, and I'd be interested to hear what Dennis thinks about this, but the sense I get is that they want it done. They're fed up of this. They've been, this has been going interminably for, uh, for two years now. And I think that you know, the EU has many other things, many other things going on. It's got, you know, migration. It's got a French, uh, the French, the you know, the French imperatives for a digital tax and for um, uh, and, and for a eurozone budget. It will have to de- The EU will have to deal with the transition uh, from Merkel uh, to the to the post-Merkel era and all these things. It doesn't want to be still talking about Brexit in two years. I think, mm. Dennis, what do you think?
3: I think that the, there's a mixed picture. Pat is right that people do want this thing to be over. They're sick of it. It's uh, a distraction. But I think the closer you get to the negotiations, the more impatient they are. So the people actually directly involved in the negotiations, certainly the last thing they want is suddenly Britain to say, oh, hey, we've changed our minds. Um, we're back. And, you know, and that's certainly <laughs> a feeling that's shared in some member states. And in fact, it's particularly strong, oddly enough, in some of the traditional British allies, like uh, in the Netherlands and some of the Nordic countries. Countries. But I think the bigger players, and actually some people at the very top of the European institutions, they take a longer view of this. And the fact is that, looked at coldly, Brexit is not in the European interest. If you reduce the size of the customs union, if you reduce the, reduce the size of the single market uh, by as big an element as the British economy, that is simply straightforwardly not in europe's interest as as a power block or as an economic block and if you're you're looking at a, an age when you're seeing these blocks big blocks emerging the united states uh, china and europe wants to be as strong as possible in between those then you know if you can reverse brexit that is fundamentally in the european interest even if it's very annoying and so i think that uh, you know while the europeans are not going to push things towards a, a a second referendum and their ideal scenario is probably actually something like norway plus so you have all the benefits of britain being in but you don't have, you don't have to at put the up, table up with them yes. wrecking everything yeah, yeah. and you know but that uh, but nonetheless i think that uh, that they certainly would allow the UK to have the time, if it wanted to, to have a second referendum if they thought it would succeed. And I think it's worth remembering because there's a kind of conventional wisdom has built up that a second referendum would inevitably fail because the Leave voters would say their slogan was tell them again. And that sort of uh, you know bad tempered bulldog spirit would be uh, awakened. But the fact is that there is a consistent lead for Remain in all of the polls. Uh, Leave has not been ahead in an opinion poll since January 2018. Uh, the lead is maybe six points or thereabouts, but it is consistent. And uh, I, I was asking one of the leading figures in the Remain campaign why we should believe uh, that uh, the Remain campaign could win. And I said, you know, it's pro- the campaign is probably going to be worse than the last one. And he said, no, it's not. And I said, why? He said, because it couldn't be. And <laughs> uh, and so I think it's possible that Actually, they will have learned their lessons from the last campaign and managed to do a better one. They're certainly going to be very well funded. And I think also the Leave campaign would have a, a problem structurally. First of all, they wouldn't have the element of surprise or indeed insurgency. And also, they'd have to answer some questions they didn't have to answer before about how is this thing actually going to look once it happens.
1: Finally, uh, Dennis, and briefly, if you wouldn't mind, I mean, if this all plays out according to the timetable, Laid out by Theresa May, and the clip we heard at the top of this podcast. Um, by the fourteenth of, of March, the fifteenth of March, as I said, is the is the Ides of March. Uh, who's the Brutus who comes wielding the knife first? For her? well. I think you know there's been not an awful lot of
3: uh, would-be wannabe Brutuses uh, lurking around, uh, you know, the the toga of uh, Theresa May over the last few months, and uh, you know, and the knives have turned out to be rather blunt or rubbery, and so she survived it. And I think still, until she delivers Brexit, she's probably quite safe. Uh, and I mean, she is strictly speaking, safe until December because, you know, she had uh, a confidence vote and that meant she was immune from another challenge within the Conservative Party for a year. But I mean, obviously, if Everybody, if, if the whole cabinet said we're going, then you know she'd have to go. But I don't think that's likely. I think they, I think you know, her function uh, is to deliver Brexit, and uh, and so once she has done that, then I think they will reward her with uh, the boot. But uh, but, but sorry, but
1: Dennis, but just just to be clear, does that mean deliver Brexit? Because this is just the withdrawal agreement. Obviously, delivering Brexit is a process that's going to go on for many years uh, and, and and much negotiation. Yeah, there I was talk of it. Tory cabinet ministers think, telling her she I, had I, to go
3: and. I, I don't know. I think I think Brexit. You have to define Brexit as meaning Britain leaves the European Union. So yeah. even if they're in a transition, uh, they'll have left. Brexit so, means know, Brexit. As uh, I often say Brexit does indeed mean leaving anyway. And so, so I think by that definition, once they're gone, I think then uh, you know then it starts. But yeah, you know, but, but you know, we thought that was going to be the end of March. Now it looks like it probably won't be, uh, or it mightn't be. And uh, and so uh, so who knows when? And this one will run for quite a while.
0: Well, I think we should all really hope that it does happen on the uh the Ides of March. I think it's most likely that the conspirators uh, approaching her in the curia will be the uh will be the sceptics, will be the um uh, the hard, the hard Brexiteers. But of course, the conspirators killed Caesar because uh they feared he was to going to declare himself a king. And of course, you know, after he was dispatched, that's what Rome ended up with. It was the end of the Republic and they ended up with essentially a, a, a monarchy. And, you know, maybe after Theresa May is dispatched, they will end up with what they have killed her for, the, a soft Brexit.
1: Oh, that's uh, very possible. Indeed. On that constitutional prognostication, we shall leave it. Thanks, as always, to Dennis for joining us. And Pat is still
0: here with us. Pat, I was away last week, but you were having all the fun at the fair of the Fianna Fáil Ardèche. Well, as it happens, I was away as well, but I came up from uh, West Cork for the Fianna Fáil Ardèche right, because I, I, would, I would never miss it. Uh, I wouldn't miss it for the world. And uh, so it was a one-day fair out at City West and uh, quite upbeat, I thought. Now, it wasn't a, a Big Ordesh in that um, there was no elections, internal party elections out of, which always takes something of the fizz out of uh, out of an Ordesh. But uh, yeah, quite upbeat. The uh, I mean, we we recorded a podcast out there, which people might have uh, heard myself and Harry and some of the uh, some of the Fianna that were that were out there. And the sense I got um, out there, I said on that was that you know they were ready for an election but not until after Brexit. And if, if, as we've just discussed, we are moving towards some sort of a settlement in Brexit, if that is the most likely outcome, I think when that happens, we are pretty much straight into election territory. So That's Miho not Martin, to say that it'll be called. Miho Martin the knife d- d-
1: from his toga in the second half of March and, and we're off.
0: I think it' more likely that uh, that the that Emperor Leo uh, moves to take out the conspirators in a preemptive move. Okay. Because I think one of the things that Fianna Fáil has been very careful about is uh, that it doesn't want to be blamed for an election. So uh, I think that was one of the reasons why uh, an election. First of all, didn't want to be blamed for an election at a sensitive time in Brexit. I think they fully expect an election to happen in the middle distance after Brexit is settled in whatever shape or form. Uh, I don't think they want to be blamed for that. I get much less caution on the government side, uh, side for that. So I think whether it happens before the summer or after, I think if Brexit is settled in March. What's your read on this getting blamed for an election? Obviously one doesn't want to be
1: blamed for calling an election in the midst of a national crisis like Brexit being unresolved but if it is resolved, I mean is there really a lot of blame apportioned where somebody says, well, this arrangement has has run its course and really we're better off having a having a new dispensation, let's have an election? I mean, do the people do the people, do the uh, people uh, of the do, country yeah. rise up in arms against that as a notion?
0: Well, first of all, people never really want an election, right? But I have two kind of competing thoughts on it. One of them is that very often the first couple of days of a campaign are about the manner of the calling of the election. So if you remember Bertie Hearn in 1997, scuttled up Laura and at seven o'clock in the morning, called an election, and the coverage of the first couple of days in that election campaign was all about the manner of calling and what was bertie doing and why was he doing it and if you remember he was involved in the tribunal and so forth at the uh, at the time but actually at the decisive end of an election campaign it's never really about the manner of the calling of the election mm. it's what all of those decisive periods in election campaign are about it's about the issues of the campaign Who's best placed to govern? Who can put together a government? What would that, what would that government do? That's uh, what elections tend to be decided on. On the other hand, one of the chief attacks on Leo Varadkar from uh, Fianna Fáil will be that he is only interested in spin, that he's a political opportunist, that he's not interested in substance and so forth. And if he calls it in a way that is seen as politically opportunist and not warranted and so forth, then I think that feeds in. To in the uh, in in public debate that will strengthen that uh, that that line. The, of worst attack. Way, the, the worst way, the worst way of doing that would be if it was something a, sort of a spurious
1: excuse, because that's where people have got into trouble previously. I think famous Charlie hahi back in nineteen eighty nine, I think, for yes. for for example, a sort of made up reason for an election, and it just looks inauthentic and spurious. But if you just said, "I think we need to go to the country because this," This,
0: this, thing has, this thing isn't working anymore. This thing isn't working anymore. Mm. We have these things to do. I can't do that. He need. He will need to show, I think, what Leo Varadkar should worry about, loath as I am to give anybody uh, uh, advice in such matters, I think what he should worry about is not so much the manner of the calling of the uh, election, but uh, being able to demonstrate to voters that there are things he wishes to do and has been frustrated by the present parliament. Uh, dispensation and the present uh, parliamentary numbers and frustrated by Fianna Fáil and, uh, and the opposition in doing. At the moment, I don't think he has set out that narrative. I think he will have to figure that out in doing so. Uh, a more recent example of somebody calling an election when there wasn't, when the public view that there wasn't really a need for one was the self-same Mrs May um, uh, across the Irish Sea. She called an election because she wanted to increase her majority to deliver Brexit. Uh, Widely seen as an unnecessary election and, of course, she lost her majority in a disastrous campaign. My own view is that she didn't lose that election because she called it unnecessarily. She lost it because, A, she ran a terrible campaign, B, she didn't have a rationale for calling it and a message uh, about the future, a compelling message about the future and what she wanted to do. At least not, during, one, not one that people during, liked. That, during the, that the Nick campaign.
1: Timothy view was not, was not you know, did not get much purchase with the British electorate.
0: And I, So I think what is a bigger concern for Leo Vryker or anybody who's going to cause an election is that vision of the future that Yes, and yes, and yes. Taking
1: all that on board, and that all makes complete sense. It must to some extent if if this deal is, is agreed in Westminster in in March and so therefore uh, Britain exits uh, the European Union on far better terms than many people envisaged uh, you know a, a year or two ago and the Irish government the current Irish government was central to that process was seen to stand up for the national interest in a very effective way there must be something rather tempting about the clouds of glory which you might trail behind you in an election before the summer
0: well interesting interesting you should ask because there is currently a concern in government buildings that if some sort of a retreat or some sort of a, don't call it a retreat, call it a a concession or a compromise on the backstop, is agreed to by the Irish government as I think will be necessary if there is going to be a deal then one of the concerns in government buildings is that they will be seen to back down after having claimed that the backstop was bulletproof and, uh, and, and secured guarantees of no hard border and so forth uh, after having claimed all those sort of things and really, let's face it playing that diplomatic triumph for political gain at home having done that that they were then forced to retreat there is a concern that that will damage them. My view is that that is is quite overblown that it's more likely that the reaction of the public is more likely to be along the lines that you suggest, which is that this has been an Irish success. It uh, avoided a hard border. There's a question about how the backstop operates four, five, six, seven years down the line. But as for now, nothing will change. And that great fear of a crash-out Brexit and a hard border and all the things that that could entail... That has been avoided, so I think there is a a, a, a much more uh, plausible upside for uh, Leo Varadkar and for the government from that outcome than, uh, than than otherwise.
1: So finally and briefly, the tone of this whole conversation, of this whole podcast has been it looks much more likely now that uh, the deal will be passed by Westminster in March. Is
0: that your sense? Let's get Dennis back on the line to say that, but uh, I, think, I think a deal is more likely now, if not March, then... Shortly after March or if in March then a short extension is needed for the legislation in any case uh, uh, for the legislation to go through, but uh, to go through Westminster that seems inevitable that that will be uh, that that will be needed. I think a deal is now the most likely outcome. I think it will require movement on the backstop uh, marginal movement from the back on the backstop from the Irish government. I think that is more likely than not, and I think if I'm right about those two things, then we may be looking at an election before the summer. Pat, thanks very much. And that's it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer,
1: Declan Conlon, and our engineer JJ Vernon. And remember, you can subscribe to us on iTunes or whatever your preferred podcast provider might be. And do remember to give us a review. Five stars are always appreciated. You can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcast and your views are always extremely welcome. You can mail me directly at hlinnehan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter. But until the next time, thanks very much indeed for listening.